The other thing that can sometimes help with some of the noise is if the, if the individual can control it. Um, like the school kids that don't like the school bell, take them down to the principal's office and let them turn it on a whole bunch of times when the school is closed, or can't stand a vacuum cleaner. I've heard cases where a child was allowed to play with a vacuum cleaner where they turned it on and off, and it went from the most feared awful thing to the fun thing when they controlled the sound. Welcome to this special episode of Adulting on the Spectrum. Today, I'm joined by two wonderful autistic self-advocates who are both very passionate about the subject of autism and employment. First, we have Temple Grandin, who needs no introduction. She's a successful published author, self-advocate, motivational speaker, and animal behaviorist, among other things. And then we have John Frizzell, who is a famous Hollywood composer who recently made his autism diagnosis public on our podcast, Adulting on a Spectrum. And today I'm going to be asking John in Temple your question about employment. Thank you for joining us today, John in Temple. It's good to be here. Thanks. It's good to be here, Eileen and, and Dr. Grandin. Let's dive right in then. The first question we got from one of our followers is, how can I help my adult son secure a job and not get taken advantage of in the workplace? Well, I would suggest um, a, a workplace where maybe you know the people there. That would help prevent that. Um, there's two things that you want to avoid in a job. The rapid multitasking, like a really crazy takeout window. I want to avoid that because the processing speed is too slow. I'd have a hard time with that. The other thing, that'd be helpful on many, many jobs and would save a lot of jobs is any task that involves a sequence of steps, like maybe cleaning an ice cream machine, for example. Give me a pilot's checklist, take apart steps, cleaning steps, reassembly steps, because I do not remember long strings of verbal information well. Or if the job um, involves uh, installing different things, for example, electrician's apprentice, there were two electricians and apprentice jobs lost because the boss went yak, 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 and the wrong light fixtures and the wrong switches got installed. If they just had taken two minutes to write down the things they were going to install, that wouldn't have happened. John? Um, Dr. Grandin's insights are, are fantastic. Um, uh, the first thing I kind of, to get to look at this, I think about this, there's a company called Oticon. Have you heard of Oticon? Um, I, I know I told you a little bit about it, Eileen. Um, but if you look at their website, um, they, they are proposing a model and they have created an effective model. It looks like for, for exactly what we're talking about um, with someone going out into the workplace and being sort of buffered and protected and placed with understanding into roles. And so I think this model that, uh, that Autocon is creating looks very exciting. Have you heard of it, uh, Dr. Grandin? I haven't heard of them, but there's another company called Aspiratech that I want to do today. And they test websites and they test electronic equipment. Like a major headphone manufacturer, I can't give out the name, sends in a new headphones and they test it with every possible thing you could connect it to, to see if it would work. There's also a, a, a man named Danny Combs in Denver who has a, a program called TACT and he's training 
young um, autistic adults to fix cars. And this would work especially well with my kind of mind. I'm the picture thinker. And John's probably more of a pattern, a pattern thinker. But some of these video game addicts, the one thing that's been very successful in getting them off of it is fixing cars. And they find out that fixing cars is more interesting than uh, the video games are. And I've been traveling around a lot yesterday, all, all the time for the last year. And I'm seeing a lot of elevators that I know are not getting serviced. And there's a lot of autistic people that'd be very good at fixing elevators. And it's a job that's not going to get replaced with artificial intelligence. Because it's a hands-on mechanical job. That would work well for me. Dr. Grin, you were talking about um, how um, to, to take the steps and to write them down, correct? Yes, write the steps down. Right. I, I find in my work writing music for film that I get feedback from from the people I'm working with. And what I have to, what I write do is I, I dissect it into very clear steps for myself. Yeah. And I write it down literally this, begin here, do this, fix this, da, da, da. and I take out all the extraneous language. Anything superfluous completely confuses me. And so I just get down to a really clear, effective step. And then I do the objective tasks, and then I'm free to do the creative tasks once I have a clear map of the objective tasks. And so by breaking these these work things down, I can handle an enormous amount. I can turn over, I can take on huge amounts of music and turn it over quickly by dissecting the difference between objective and subjective and creative thinking. Well, I used to did something similar with cattle handling projects. I needed to find out the constraints, like the boundaries of the property, for example the right away from the railroad track, how many cattle it had to handle. I'd write these things down up front. So I knew exactly what the output of the project had to be. And I would do this during the project meeting and I learned how to ask the right questions. You probably did the same thing. Yeah. They're critiquing the music and you have to ask the right questions so you get clear guidance on what to do. Precisely, I must get in there. If I, if I don't have a clear question, I come back and I say, does this mean this? And I get, a, a lot of clarity on that. No, I want I want clear guidance. Vague stuff doesn't work. And then one of my very first jobs, I criticized some welding and I said it looked like pigeon doo-doo. And the plant engineer pulled me into his office quietly and explained that I needed to apologize for that. And that if I didn't like the welding, I should have come to him because he was the employer of the welder. He very quietly told me what I should do instead of just chewing me out for it. This is the perfect transition to our next question, which is, at what age did you find your passion, like your niche, that turned into a, a career for you? Well, for me, it was a teenager. I came from a non-agricultural background, and I originally thought I was going to be an experimental psychologist because I got fascinated with optical illusions. Then I went out to my aunt's ranch at age 15 and um, got interested in the cattle industry. You have to get exposed to things. And I think a lot of kids today are not exposed to enough different things to find out what their passion or what they're good at is. Too many kids today are growing up, never used a tool, never used a ruler. Uh, kids that are good at math are not being moved ahead in math or the music uh, individuals aren't being moved ahead in music. Yeah, this is very true. This is happening for my son who's on the spectrum and he's like very like above grade level in math 
but nobody's challenging him. So he's getting bored at school. And no, no, no. He needs to be challenged. Bored mathematicians uh, make behavior problems. Got to challenge him. Let's take Katherine Johnson, the famous um, mathematician that worked for NASA. Um, she was horribly discriminated against, but her math education was done right, and she was moved quickly ahead and was doing college math at a very young age. Lack of challenge creates behavioral problems. I definitely felt that in my life, and I think it relates to, to education. Um, I need to have a, a really be stretched and pushed, or I'm just I'm kind of a mess. Oh, yeah. So for me, um, it was, I probably was four. I was, I just, but I didn't know it for a long time. I would just sit at the piano and, and tell stories with sound. And I would, I would imagine, I didn't even have any training, but my father played music a lot. There was a lot of music in the house. And it wasn't until um, I was 15 and there was a record by my favorite jazz guitarist, Joe Pass. And when that needle hit the groove, I could see the rest of my life. And that was it. Well, it was exposure. And if you hadn't been exposed to music, you wouldn't have had the opportunity to get interested and then find out you were good at music. Yeah. You, John, of course, how did you get into writing uh, music for Hollywood? Oh, okay. I, um, I, my dad's life wasn't going great. And so I couldn't finish college and I got a job as an assistant engineer in a recording studio and they did TV commercials there. And, um, and they used to, and my job was basically to copy the, the, the documents that the jingle writers were going to use to do their work. And I just started making copies for myself and writing my own music. And then my boss, like maybe a few months in said, hey, that's pretty good. And we sent it in and I actually won it and I got the job. And then a few years later, um, on a strange series of events, I, I got to work with the legendary Ryuichi Sakamoto after he had just won the Academy Award, but I was very good at handling synthesizers and I could rewire anything and I could patch in all this new technology and create it into a system that no one had ever really done it that way before. Um, and that led me to work with um, uh, legendary composer James Newton Howard, who I actually ran into today at breakfast and he was my mentor to really become a film composer. But so, and I think the reason, um, Temple, in your book, um, uh, thinking in pictures, you say, I had to sell my work, not my personality. That's, right. That's exactly what I did. And yeah. and I would show off my drawings to people. And when people saw my drawings, they thought my drawings were really good. And I can show you one of my, my drawings right now. Here are some of my drawings in thinking in pictures. I don't know if they're very clear. They're holding yeah. up to the camera. But what I did was to sell my work. And uh, you started out in the music studio doing a low-level job on um, one of the things I did, I recognized backdoors. And there's a scene in the HBO movie where I get the editor's card. Our Arizona farm ranchman, a state farm magazine editor, because I knew if I wrote for that magazine, that would help my career. And I started writing for that magazine. And then I got, you know, gradually started up my business one job at a time. I had some excellent mentors. There was a contractor that uh, saw some of my work who seeked me out. I had a great science teacher. I want to give credit to um, my mentors. There was a superintendent at the Swift plant, Norb Goskowitz. I think it's interesting is both of those were former military officers. They got along with them really well, kind of real practical, no-nonsense, calm. Well, Dr. Grant, and mentors and backdoors seem to, those are, I'm a big advocate of both of those ideas. I am of, too. Yeah. Really, really important. But the other problem I'm seeing today is kids are not learning any life skills. I mean, I'm appalled 
that the number of 12 year olds and 14 year olds have never gone shopping by themselves. They've never ordered food in a restaurant by themselves. Just very basic skills like this. Now, fortunately, I learned how to work at a young age. When I was 13, a mother got me a little sewing job at the local seamstress that I took apart dresses and hemmed them. And when I was 15, I was cleaning horse stalls. And I'm realizing how important that was, learning how to work, doing a job outside the family, where somebody outside the family is the boss. That's important. Let me ask you something. That's not a question from our followers, but uh, my son is now in a Montessori classroom and they're teaching him. Actually how how, how old is your son? My youngest is eight right now. Yeah, my oldest is nonverbal, but my uh, my eight-year-old, the one who's very good at math, just started Montessori school. And one thing they're teaching him is how to knit, knitting. And it seemed like so interesting to me because in public school, they don't teach you how to knit. But in Montessori, I don't know if you're familiar with the Montessori yes, approach. And I think they're very close to uh, what you're describing, teaching life skills, uh, shopping, yeah. independence, and all of that. So you're you're onto something there. Well, I'm finding a lot of parents just can't let go on letting their kid just go into a shop by themselves and buy something and have to talk to the staff in the store. I'm running into that all the time. Fully verbal kids may be doing excellent at school. And for young kids, I'd recommend at around 11 on Jobs like walking the next door neighbor's dog. It's Mr. Jones's dog. And every morning at seven, you have to walk it. Uh, maybe a church volunteer job or a farmer's market volunteer job. We need to find something to replace the paper routes. Because uh, I have grandfathers and grandmothers come up to me all the time that discover they're autistic when the kids get diagnosed. But both of those um, grandfathers and grandmothers had learned how to work at an early age. So our next question actually asks about what happens when you you have a job and it's difficult. The question is, I have a job I love. I work with autistic children and it seems to be successful, but sometimes I feel burnout and overwhelmed. I have a lot of responsibility, a lot of tasks, and I get very tired. I feel like it's too much for me. Have you ever experienced autistic burnout and how do you deal with it if you feel it coming on? Well, I've had a lot of issues with anxiety. I've been on antidepressant medication since my uh, early 30s. I discuss it in my book, Thinking in Pictures. And I was in a constant fear state. There was something wrong with my nervous system and a very low dose of an antidepressant stopped it. Now, the big mistake that's made is people take too high a dose. And I also want to add way too many drugs are given out to little kids like candy. I think that's totally bad. Um, now, I think one of the things we have to avoid is the rapid multitasking types of jobs that that I can't I can't handle that. But designing equipment or composing music does not require rapid multitasking. And I want I'd start to look at what's going on with the autism program that's causing the problem. We got to just as, he, as John was talking about breaking music down into creative and the uh, well, uh, non-creative parts of it. Okay, what is the problem at that job that's causing the burnout? I want more information on that. Then we can figure out how to make an accommodation. So if we, so, so I think what Dr. Grandin, if I can summarize, if we can filter out the, the, the things that cause burnout, if we can fill, and if some of them could be environmental, they could be lighting, they could be sound, they could be the multitasking, switching between, between things. And when you can filter those things out, um, I think for me, I know I can be very, very durable and I can work 
really crazy long hours oh, when I could in, yeah when I'm in a when, when I'm in a clean and you know I said clean environment when I don't have clutter of machines beeping and this and that and I can just focus I can just I mean I have to set alarms to stop I just get very very deep into my work well I did the same thing with doing drawings you see you're not multitasking now one of the issues we need to be looking at now in the environment is led lights that flicker and you can take out your phone film it in slow motion video now this doesn't bother me see this is not everybody on the spectrum i say it's 10 or 20 percent they'll have problems with leds that flicker and some flicker and some don't and if your computer monitor is flickering you need to get one with a higher refresh rate maybe uh, the, maybe double the refresh rate to just stop that from flickering but I, when architects asked me about, you know, uh, you know, architecture for schools and stuff, I said, number one, let's get LED lights that don't flicker. Um, and you can test them regular slow motion video. Uh, but, you know, people often say, well, he's got challenges at work. Well, is it something with multitasking? Is it something with noise overload? Is it something with a bad boss that's pecking on him? I need to find out what the problem is before I can solve it. So... What do you think is uh, the most important thing for schools to know about educating students with autism? Well, I think there needs to be a lot more emphasis on life skills. But I've talked to some very good life skill coaches that have said they got yelled at by parents for not doing enough academics. But I'm too often seeing, I was just over a conference a month ago, and they told me about a student who had straight A's all through college and absolutely couldn't keep a job had had absolutely no experience with working before she graduated from college. I wanna make that transition from school to work more gradual. So by the time they graduate college, they've already had some jobs. That's what I'd like to do, but I wanna emphasize it's never too late to start. And that's been shown with the car mechanics. And the good thing about that, there isn't multitasking. You work on one vehicle at a time. There is no multitasking. What do you both think about autistic teachers? Do you think that I would think that um, ben, it would be a benefit for any decent sized school to have an autistic teacher on the faculty? I think that as an autistic student, what a great way to see an example and what a great way to see where you can go. Yeah, I had some teachers, I'm pretty sure, were undiagnosed autistics. But if this was more open, if, if schools made an, a point of having autistic teachers and it could be more open and more openly discussed, um, I well, I do a lot of I do a lot of talks for businesses, and uh, and talk about my book, Visual Thinking, and I make it very plain to businesses that they need the skills, like that best mechanic, maybe autistic. I had autistic people build equipment for me. I can think of two of them right now. They're retiring now. I've typed their names into Google patents, and all kinds of patents come up. They own businesses. See, this is one of the things that makes me kind of want to pull my hair out as you go back and forth between the autism world and the industrial world. Um, and the problem is those mechanics that are autistic and undiagnosed, they're not getting replaced right now. It's a big problem. And I've been out to the, the, to the tech companies and, and there's rows of computers there and the computer programmers, whole room full of them, just silent, glued to their screens. Been there, seen that. I think half of them are on the spectrum. Um I wanted to read a quote from about this for schools for, about from uh, Simon Baron Cohen's book, The Pattern Seekers. Um, Simon Baron Cohen says, our schools should be identifying children from the earliest age as hyper systematizers, 
which will include some children who have been formally diagnosed as autistic. SOE can provide an educational environment that plays to their strengths, presenting information in an if and then format so they can shine rather than fail or to be turned off by education altogether. Well, I, I agree with that. And I get asked all the time, how can we tell what a child's strength is? Well, I was I had a little flute when I was a child. I could never figure out how to play it. If you'd been given that same flute, you would have played it just fine. But how would you know who has the musical talent if you don't expose them to the piano and the flute of the instruments? I had lots of things to make things. I had tools when I was growing up. I liked um, making things, but I'm seeing kids growing up today where they've never made a paper airplane, they've never used a ruler, and they're in college. I had a lucky experience in high school with, a, with my dean, a faculty named Tom Yankus, who brought me into his office and said, he basically said, Frizzell, what am I going to do with you? Your grades are all over the map. Your behavior is all over the map. I, I just, if I let you just go into a practice room and study music all day, can you just not be a pain basically and and i and i said yeah i think i can do that and i just basically <laughs> spent my senior year practicing and it ended up really working out i went right from there to usc music school so it was it was a really wonderful little situation that just ended up with me being able to just laser focus on what what was going to be my career well and and you're you were really good at that just the other day i ran into a pilot that um he had an autistic kid that was flunking out of high school and uh, they got introduced him to engineering. He's working on construction now, testing concrete, because he finally got exposed to something that he was interested in. And that's the sort of stuff I like to hear. I uh, see my mind thinks in specific examples. You see, there's big educational concepts: inclusive classroom, employment. You see, my mind tends to think in specific examples and then kind of put them into. Uh, into, into categories. Like for an inclusive classroom, I would think, uh, okay, the LED lighting I need to fix, uh, more written instructions, checklist type style instructions, and uh, dealing with the land. Those are three very specific things that we'd need to do in uh, to make a classroom more inclusive. Because you talk about it in big, broad concepts. Well, how do you actually do it? How does someone find employers who hire autistic people? Well, like John just had to show his music off. I just had to show my drawings off and my writing off. We showed the work, both of us. That's how we did it. And that's how I sold jobs, simply showing off the portfolio. But we both have very specialized skills. You may have somebody else where uh, they don't have a, a fancy skill to, to show off. Right. And, and, but they have other traits like just being accurate. Let's say working in a stock room at a store um, and they stock the stuff comes in and they go through the manifest and make sure that what's in the box is what's on the manifest. I know a, a friend of mine is a store and uh, he's an autistic man doing the stock room and he's very accurate on, on making sure to keep track of the inventory. Okay, that's a useful skill, but then you have to make sure that some other person in the store is not bullying. Uh, my friend had to deal with that and basically told the other guy that he's going to get fired if he keeps doing that. Like, like Dr. Grandin said, we're, we were both fortunate to have this skill. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, going back to, again, uh, Simon Baron Cohen says, um, HP Enterprises neurodiverse teams are 30% 
more productive in software testing and debugging than teams of neurotypical employer employees. Well, and I say the same thing in here because um, let's look at something like risk assessment, for example, a whole chapter in here on disasters. And you take something like the Fukushima nuclear power plant, the mathematicians did a wonderful job of making it earthquake proof, but they didn't see that they needed waterproof doors to protect it from a tsunami drowning the electric emergency cooling pump. Watertight doors would have saved it. See, the mathematician calculates, I can't design a nuclear reactor, but someone like me would say, hey, if the wave breaches the seawall, the electric pump's not going to work and very bad things will happen. We better build watertight doors. So even the nuclear power plant needs me. And when I found out that's why Fukushima burned up, I was shocked. That's a visual thinking mistake. Very basic one. The next question is, do you think there will come a time when the world will be more accommodating for people on the spectrum, specifically employers, you know, education, medicine? I think the best thing to do is a more bottom-up approach. And I did this with cattle handling. And I've been effective in improving cattle handling. And let's I worked one ranch at a time, one feedlot at a time, and then I wrote about it. So let's say we get something really good with inclusive employment going, then you write about it. Writing's been a very important part of my career. And you write about how to do it, how to make it successful, one successful uh, business at a time. And the other thing I have found is you need to have a champion. I did some consulting for a major brand name company that will not be named, where they had an excellent program and their vice president level champion had stroke. And the program went downhill because the champion had suddenly left. Um, that was that was not good. You know, and it was sudden and he was incapacitated. And I designed better equipment and I wrote about it. I, I trained people how to do it. And then I taught McDonald's how to inspect meatpacking plants. And then I wrote about it. I have five scientific papers just on the meatpacking plant program that I designed. You see, writing it and getting it onto the record so other people can read that and do it. And maybe, John, I want to see what you have to say about that. Well, I, this that's absolutely wonderful and fascinating. I, I think what you said about taking these ideas and then expanding them, um, if I look at, I was reading about that company, the company Auticon, and yeah. the way they're placing people in tech, I have ideas about how that could model could work in creative fields because I happen to get through create. I happen to well, sort that's of your, that's your field. Yeah, and I yeah. think these models we be, we start with these models, and then if they work in one area, we just take them and move them to another area and expand them. And so this is how we're going to get to where our our question, which is, can we ever really can we really change things? Yes, but we have to do it a model at a time, and we have to push on both sides. We have to get people to look at the personal interview. We have to get more education. We have to get people more aware. And then we have to replicate these models. Well, an interview for me when I was doing my design business was showing off the portfolio. That's how I sold Cargill. Center drawing, center, this is before there was internet, plastic pages with pictures in it, a brochure, a couple of trade magazine articles and cover letter. A 30-second wow. Something that you could look at very quickly and go, yeah. And I ended up designing a front end of every Cargill beef plant in North America. And I think that's doing pretty good for somebody they thought was stupid, because I couldn't do higher math. 
I can do arithmetic just fine. But in music, of course, you could have the same issue. You can show the portfolio off. But the yeah, other I mean, my first really, really big break was was um, the fourth Alien movie, and I had a neighbor who was um, in was it was an assistant to one of the executives on the film and said, "Hey, why don't you give me your music?" And I, I would never get the job. And I just kept giving my music over and over and over. Well, the director, Jean-Pierre Genet, heard my music and was actually angry because he thought I had read the script and the script was top secret. And I got a phone call from the president of music at Fox and said, how did you get the script? And I said, I never read the script. And they said, really? And I said, yeah, I never read the script. I didn't, I know nothing of the script. And then they told the director that and Jean-Pierre then said that he wanted to meet me. And that's, it was just through this weird luck of of the work. Well, those kinds of things happen all the time. You know, meeting the right people. I call it the person who can open the door. And then there are, there are some people that then they get scared to walk through the door. You went through the door. You have but, to have the guts to do that. Yeah, and I, I do want to keep getting back to that. These are these these very special skills. And That's right. And and we and we have to expand this outside of what I what my experience. Well, we we both have very special skills. Yeah. And but let's look at somebody that's uh, you know uh, uh, doesn't have these special skills. Let's look at things they can be very accurate in what they do. Okay, you have somebody uh, unloading trucks and you and you're bringing inventory in. I don't care what the product is. And sometimes they put the wrong product in the wrong box. That happens. Uh, the count is wrong. And the autistic person is going to make sure that the count is correct and that the merchandise that's on the manifest was received. It's important to have really accurate uh, uh, inventory. There's a lot of autistic people to be good at that. Now, the thing that employers have to realize, they're going to may take longer to train. And they need to be given pilots checklists. Do not burden them with long strings of verbal information. Yak, 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 that doesn't work. I mean, so I think Dr. Grand, and if we can, what we're talking about is if we can get these advantageous and profitable traits to be popularized and understood by more companies, that companies will be looking for more autistic workers to come in and improve statistics in certain areas, which Simon Baron Cohen points out all over the all over the book. Pattern seekers, and you can see it. Well, in and I've, I'm pointing it out in my book too. Yeah. Um, the patterns, if pattern think is more of the math and music mind, I'm the, a lot, I worked with a lot of people that did really badly in school. They couldn't do algebra, but they are geniuses with mechanical devices. And now I'm immediately seeing the fiddly little mechanism that operates the door in a parking garage elevator because the door is glass. Um, I don't trust that door. I use the briefcase to hold it. Um, but somebody has to fix that little fiddly device. To make sure the door doesn't cl uh, close on somebody and the elevator moves with somebody stuck in the door. That'd be very dangerous. Um, and the other thing I like about these hands-on jobs, artificial intelligence will not replace somebody to fix an elevator or fix an airplane or fix a car. And electric cars are going to have all kinds of gadgets for self-driving eventually. Those have to be fixed and kept working. There's all this physical stuff. It's not going to go away. I've been looking over the, um, let's say, what jobs are in danger of AI, and it's not going to be um, heating and air conditioning, I can assure you of that, or electrician. Those jobs are safe. 
Unfortunately, there's a lot of jobs in music that aren't, including probably mine. Well, and this is the thing that's scary. That's the thing that's scary. And writing jobs, like just some very basic kind of reporting things. Yeah, it's scary. And it's probably more scary for you than it is for me. Um, because of stuff I, because I do a lot of work in mechanical stuff. Let's see how you, you answer that. It says, I've noticed some organizations say that they are helping with the autism unemployment problem, but they are actually just seeking to take advantage of the situation for their own profit. I got approached by an internship group where the internships were paid, but the program cost more than the pay. So I was wondering how people can go about avo avoiding things like that. What was the job? Uh, they, uh, you know, I think interns should be paid. The other thing I think is that interns should not be just doing clerical work, like you know, running a copier or something like that. The good internships, at least in my industry, uh, they give them a problem to solve. Like in one of the plants, uh, they couldn't figure out why the forklifts and the pallet jacks were not staying charged, and so they took this engineering student. And they said, "Well, find out why these." machines uh, aren't holding a charge. He gets on, calls up all the companies and everything, and he found out they were using the wrong charger. I thought that was an excellent uh, project for an intern. See, my mind thinks in specific examples. Uh, they had they brought him in, they, they gave him an actual real problem to, to solve. You know, then the, the student learned something from it too. I'm kind of wondering um, if, if different organizations could have some sort of a for perhaps if Autism Speaks, say there was an internship program that they had accredited, or if there was an accreditation system that could eventually be developed as uh, maybe if, if you're a college student and you're looking at, a, at an internship for autistic people and you could go and see that these three different autistic groups have certified it. Um, that's a tricky idea though. Um, it takes a lot of work and, and there's a lot of vulnerability in that. Uh, I do think I'm going to go back to Otacon again, and I'm going to say that an organization like Otacon, where you can have a trusted name behind an internship, uh, could be very valuable to expand on. Well, and I'm thinking about a Spiritech that tests uh, one website that they tested. Uh, they couldn't figure out why they're losing 20% of their business, and they found out that one digit of the phone number had been changed when the website got upgraded, and the autistic person found that. It's a hard question, though. I mean, how do how do you how do you make this sort of foolproof? I, I don't think that you can. Well, I don't think I don't think you can. And and uh, you know, I'm, I can think of a lot of things that we we should not do. We don't put them on the the crazy multitasking jobs like a chaotic store during the holidays. I want to avoid uh, avoid that kind of a, those kinds of things. But I had talked to a lady who was getting a PhD in, in uh, vocational rehabilitation, and the verbal thinkers tend to over-abstract. And so they had an autistic man working in a shop, some kind of a gift shop, and uh, he didn't work out. So they just gave him another autistic employee, but that really annoyed the shop teacher because the shop teacher had already taught them um, all their procedures. Well, it turned out, if they had asked a few questions, you know what the problem was? 
there was one particular Christmas carol that this employee just could not stand. <laughs> what was it? Which one? Removed from the playlist, and that would have solved the problem. See, was ask it? a few questions, find out where the problem was. This was ridiculous. This is a real case, and this is recent. This is one I heard about a year ago. This is recent. Uh, you know, state or county vocational rehab. Ask a few questions. What is the problem? A single song could easily taken off the playlist. That's a, that's a fair. I, I actually don't. I try to just not, boy, once we hit Thanksgiving, I try to stay away from the whole thing until I'm so happy when January 2nd comes. <laughs> You're not a Christmas type of guy. I know. I, I don't. I just, it's the, the incessant Christmas music drives me crazy. <laughs> well, it was one song that had a sound that you know hurt his ears. And the other thing that can sometimes help with some of the noise is if the if the individual can control it. Um, like the school kids that don't like the school bell, take them down to the principal's office and let them turn it on a whole bunch of times when the school is closed, or can't stand a vacuum cleaner. I've heard cases where a child was allowed to play with a vacuum cleaner where they turned it on and off, and it went from the most feared awful thing to the fun thing when they controlled the sound. Dr. Grannon, that reminds me of you were talking about a balloon popping. Didn't it scare you? And then yes, you made, it did. And what should have been done with that? Yeah, is I hated balloons. And what we should have done is get a whole bunch of balloons and I could blow one up really small like this, take a pin and pop it. Or I pop it and then gradually make it a little bigger or it might be a little louder. And then I should have taken a pin and pop it. That's what should have been done. I didn't know the things I know now. <laughs> So, so the so the idea is that the, is it as autistic people we can actually stress our tolerances slowly and incrementally slowly and incrementally and I think this needs to be done with headphones because the problem is if you wear ear protectors all the time the sound sensitivity worsens. Now it's okay to have them with you all the time. Have them with you all the time. That's control. And then you go in the train station or you go in those really horrible bathrooms with all those hand dryers. Uh, you put it on for that. But then other places try to take it off. And I've talked to one young man who was able to get rid of the headphones eventually. See, the control is so important. Now, the LED light flickering, that's just got to be fixed. Because yeah, yeah. there's no way to control it if you've got the wrong LED lights. And then and other people that are not autistic get migraines from that. Um, so, so That's the number one architectural thing if you're building a school I want. Check the LED lights and make with slow motion video. Make sure they don't flicker. Let me. This is this is fascinating here. Coming to the idea that, do you think that, Dr. Grandin, that if autistic people de-stress, in other words, avoid difficult situations too much, they can actually inhibit them from being functional in a job system. In jobs, well, you need to learn to get some tolerance, but there's no way I can I can deal with rapid multitasking job. The other thing is. I can't screen out background noise in noisy restaurants, so I'm functioning deaf in a noisy restaurant yeah. because my processor speed is slow. But um, I, okay, just the other day I was in the airport and the alarm went off and there was a red light flashing and and I, I don't like it, but I tolerate it. I, it's it's it, there's a point where the stuff just gets too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Uh, with chaotic multitasking, I'm thinking about a Christmas wrapping station at one of our bookstores. Normally, that bookstore would be a wonderful place for an autistic person to work, but not when it's chaotic at Christmas and you've got this crazy wrapping station and three people are wrapping books. 
with Christmas paper as fast as they can wrap them. And it's really easy to mix them all up. And I looked at that and I go, you don't put them there. There's so many really chaotic jobs I think we need to avoid. Thank you so much for watching part one of this special edition episode of Adulting on the Spectrum. Don't forget to tune in next week for part two. I will be speaking more with uh, John and Temple on uh, employment and autism. See you then.